Genesis chapter 6. I can tell you this morning that there's not another pastor in a 300-mile radius that's going to preach on what I'm going to preach on this morning. Uh, not because it's, it's not interesting or substantive, but primarily because it's just weird. Um, it's strange. Uh, the section of scripture that we're going to get into this morning is, is, is so bizarre that no one in their right mind would willingly just pick this passage for a Sunday morning service unless you happen to be going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible, which we do here at Calvary 316, and thus we don't avoid anything, and we're going to look at some bizarre stuff. Now, as we get to Genesis 6, it's going to be helpful just to take a minute, it's been a few weeks, to kind of recap a few things that have unfolded that bring us to this particular chapter in human history. The first two chapters of Genesis, they're glorious, right? God created. He created all things. The stars, the sun, the moon, the plants, the sunrise, the sunset. A beautiful ocean, a blue sky, birds. God created everything. And as God was creating, he evaluated every day with the same line. It was good. Not that he was like, I did a good job today, because he's God. He does a good job every day. But rather, he's evaluating what he made in the context of how the crescendo of creation, mankind, would enjoy what he had just made. In a sense, when God said it was good, it's as though he's saying, man is going to love this. And don't we? Now, you get to chapter 3. Not only has God created this incredible world and universe for man's enjoyment, he, he created a garden, gave it to Adam, made for Adam a wife, her name was Eve. All was good in the hood until man decided to rebel. God created and life was good, but then man sinned. And we see that life became tarnished. It became ruined. Not only would man be exiled from this beautiful garden, cut off to the tree of life, death would enter the human condition. Sin would ravage man personally. In that moment, he knew something was missing. There was a, an inhibition. There was a, a self-awareness. He knew he was naked. Beyond that, Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. There's conflict now within society. The first family. Abel's killed by his older brother. And flowing from these events, chapter four documents, after Cain kills Abel, that Cain leaves. He refuses to repent and he chooses instead a, to establish a godless society. And we see through chapter four, this society progressed through the generations laid out through Cain's descendants. However, while the world at large was progressing further and further away from Almighty God, we see that not all men have been swept up in this particular tide. And this world dominated by the rebellious descendants of Cain, Genesis 5 lets us know that God still possessed a faithful remnant descending from yet another one of Adam and Eve's sons, a man by the name of Seth. While there is no doubt that things were quickly progressing to a point of crisis, that things were moving human history to a point 
of judgment. These generations that descended from Seth, these generations of men were used by God to be light bearers in the midst of darkness. These men willingly rejected the things of the world, instead desiring to live a life as a witness in the world of a better way. May the same be said of you and I, for we too live in a world growing dark, but, we, but may we take that responsibility to be light bearers just as seriously. We get to Genesis 6, beginning with verse 1. If you'll join with me, we're going to read through the first four verses. We're told it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. We're told there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Admittedly, these four verses present one of the more complex historical events recorded in the entire Bible. It's difficult, and it's going to get strange. It's going to get weird. It will be bizarre, but let's just kind of work our way through the text as best as we can. For starters, these verses present three clear realities of this godless society that had been founded by Cain. First, we're told, quote, men began to multiply on the face of the earth. What this tells us is that at this juncture of human history, a population explosion was occurring. Now, keep in mind, from Genesis chapter 4 up until this moment, 1,600 years of human history have transpired. You can calculate that with the genealogies. And with the incredible, incredibly long life expectancies, with prolonged childbearing years, some have speculated that the population of the world, when you get to this chapter, it's not as many of us would imagine. A couple thousand people, nomadic tribes, scattered out. Now, if you run calculations with the genealogy, and I won't bore you with the details, other than to say that there are reputable scholars that claim it's likely that the world here in Genesis 6 was populated identically to ours today. Six to seven billion people. There are a lot of people on earth. There is a population explosion taking place. 600 years have transpired from Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden, Cain killing Abel. Now, the second thing we note about this godless society, in addition to a population explosion, is that during this time, look at it again, quote, there were giants on the earth who, once again, quote, were the mighty men of old, men of renown. This Hebrew word, giants, it means just that, giants. 
the, the word, if you're interested, is Nephilim, from where we get Nephilim. It would appear from our text that during this population growth, somehow and in some way, the human genome was altered so that not only could men grow to incredible statures, but that they would also possess the ability to achieve supernatural exercises and feats of which we're told they were renowned. How did this happen? Well, our text records that this took place specifically why, look at it. The giants were on the earth, mighty men of old, men of renown. Why? When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. This is why we're given this particular set of circumstances. Now, there seems to be very little confusion as to the plain reading of this phrase, the daughters of men. You're not going to find too many people debating that point. Everyone would agree that that's human women, the daughters of men. However, the controversy of our text undoubtedly centers upon the identity of these men were just called the sons of God. Now, one view claims that the sons of God were actually the descendants of this righteous line of Seth. The implication being that what's taking place in these four verses is a tragic, unholy union occurring between godly men called out, separated by God, this faithful remnant of Seth's line with the ungodly women descending through Cain's lineage. You know, the Bible says, don't be unequally yoked to unbelievers. And thus, what's happening here is that these men that God had called to be a light are now compromising. And thus, we're given this terrible situation. Problem with that position. There are three glaring issues. First, nowhere in Scripture is it ever recorded there being a righteous line of Seth. Instead, what we're given in Scripture is a messianic lineage that descended through a specific collection of men who descended from Seth, recorded in Genesis 5. Keep in mind, other than one man and his three sons who descended from Seth, everyone else who descended from Seth's lineage, as with Cain's, would die in the flood. There is no such thing as the righteous line of Seth. There is the righteous lineage of the Messiah, but not of Seth. The second problem with, with this position is that while it does remove some of the strangeness from our text, it doesn't explain how, for the most part, a natural union between godly men, ungodly women, but still men and women, would have created and spawned supernatural giants, these men of renown. It doesn't provide an a rational explanation for that. Thirdly, the biggest problem with such a position concerning the text boils down to the simple reality. The phrase, sons of God, is never used in scripture to refer to human beings. The truth of the matter is that the phrase is, is rarely used. The only three places that you'll find this phrase, sons of God, or in the Hebrew, Ben Elohim is in Job chapter 1, verse 6, Job chapter 2, verse 1, and Job chapter 38, verse 7. 
Interestingly, Job possibly predates his story, the flood itself. He references the sons of God as well. The phrase, ben Elohim, in every instance in Scripture, is used to refer not to human beings, but instead to angels. As a matter of fact, the scholars behind the Septuagint, this translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, they actually translate this phrase, ben Elohim, as the angels of God. They don't translate sons, they translate instead angels. Now, as weird as it initially seems, what Genesis 6 seems to imply is that during this incredible population explosion before Noah's flood, there was some type of a very strange, perverted, sexual interaction occurring between fallen angels or demons and human women that then produced a whole, new, a whole new genetic code within mankind that fostered these giants and men of renown. Now, before you write me off and turn me off as this being lunacy, because once again, yes, I just said, that demons were having sex with women. That's bizarre. That's strange. And before you think that I'm out of my mind or that the Bible seems just stupid here, consider this from another angle. Maybe the logic of Satan. In Genesis 3, verse 15, if you'll recall, God had declared to Satan himself that it would be what? Through the seed of the woman that he'd not only provide a savior for mankind, but through whom God would ultimately destroy and crush Satan. With that in mind, doesn't it seem logical then that Satan would employ such a strategy that would eventually destroy the human gene pool, making it therefore impossible for a savior to be born? It's weird, but it's possible. Note that this view is not only in line with the recorded history of the first century Jewish historian Josephus. In addition to the vast majority of biblical interpretation, but if you consider this idea provides some type of clarity for many of the mythological stories of not just the Greeks, but countless cultures. These stories of what? Of the gods coming to earth, impregnating women, and producing men who are like Thor, right? It could provide an explanation that maybe Greek mythology isn't as mythological as we consider, but might have some validation that these mythological stories could have an origin in something that actually happened in this pre-flood world. Beyond that, while the angelic host we know is asexual, not, not given in marriage, we do know, according to the author of the book of Hebrews, that angels have the ability to take on a human form, most notably, in every instance in scripture, a masculine form. Interesting, the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Angels asexual, every time they take a human form in scripture, they're always presented in the masculine tense. Aside from this, sexual perversions 
of the highest order are commonplace in the occult and in Satanism. Now, I do not recommend, please, full disclosure, I do not recommend you Google sex with demons. The reason I don't recommend it is because I did. I felt as a pastoral obligation, I had to do some digging here. So I did. Type and think this is a terrible idea. Aside from the fact that there were 11,200,000 results that came up in 0.4 seconds. It's a lot of results for those keywords. The very first article I found was incredibly disturbing. I got like two paragraphs in and thought, I cannot read any more of this. Let me just give you the opening. The title of the article is this. Incubi and Succubi, Sexual Relations with Demons. This is how the author begins it. Spiritual sex is real. It requires some psychic work in order to open your mind to senses not normally accessible to the average person. But the way to do this is much easier than with other methods and a lot more pleasurable. And then they go on to describe how this takes place, how you should engage in it. Within the occult, this is not a strange concept. Like this is almost like a foundational bedrock idea of human beings having these type of perverted interactions with the spiritual realm. So while the Bible presents it, even today, there's evidence of things like this taking place. Now, the idea of demons committing this gross act, impregnating human women in order to spawn a superhuman race, that idea actually does provide insight into two additional New Testament passages. Jude chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Let me read it for you. Jude writes, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, speaking of these angels, having, quote, given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude talks about angels who had left their domain, committing sexual perverted relations, being reserved in chains, more than likely potentially a reference here to what we find in Genesis 6. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 20, we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So Peter refers to something happening with spirits before the flood, being placed in chains, in which Jesus, not going to preach after he, he died, but making it clear that their fate had been sealed because he gained the victory. Now, one more observation that is important concerning this topic. And this heads off some questions uh, that, that might arise as you progress in your own study of the Bible. But our text is clear, look at it again, that this demonic act that created giants took place 
What does Moses tell us? In those days and also afterward. After what? After the flood. Well, it seems this trend was emblematic of a pre-Diluvian world. Moses insinuates that this, in, this terrible practice still occurred in isolated communities even after the flood. Consider that while Abraham's descendants were growing into a nation, while they were held in captivity in Egypt, the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham's descendants, while they were gone in Egypt, it became populated with a collection of people groups spawned from what it appears to be the exact same practice, this unholy union we originally find in Genesis 6. Numbers chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. We read, And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land. This is when Moses sends in the 12 spies. They're reporting, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. This is the other place we find Nephilim in the Hebrew. The descendants of Anak who came from the giants, Nephilim. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Deuteronomy chapter three, verse 11 we're told, for only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnants of the giants. Indeed, we're told, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Meaning that it still existed when Moses was writing. Nine cubits in its length was his bed, four cubits in its width, according to the standard cubit. At a minimum, this places his bed at 13 feet long huge bed. First Samuel chapter 17, verse four, we're told, and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, most believe nine feet, nine inches. Second Samuel chapter 21, verse 19. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines and David's cousin, a Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath. And then we're told, whose shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Understand within Canaan, there seems to be an indication that after the flood, this demonic practice occurred in a very concentrated area. That the people groups that inhabited the land God had given to God's people, that they were perverted. You study these people groups on your own, you'll find all types of occultism, Satanism, witchcraft. It, it, it provides an explanation why God said to the children of Israel that go in and kill everyone. Like that this wasn't an act of, of genocide, but rather it was a war between good and evil, between demons and the righteous. Now, with all this in mind, it should come as no surprise, right? That the final reality concerning this godless and perverse world summarized in these first four verses that God, right? Three things about this godless society. Population explosion, something weird happening. God now, he can no longer sit on the sidelines and allow things to continue unabated. Now we're gonna dive to verse five. 
we're going to kind of leave this conversation where it was. If you have further questions about any of that stuff, would like more information on where you can read about various things, talk to me after the service. Like I said, it's, 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 it's weird stuff. Interestingly, uh, on, a, on a one final amendment, if you study cultures, you take 200 of the most prominent world cultures spanning the globe, you'll find within their ancient histories two, two things about the world and the past that every world culture agrees took place. Every culture records there being some type of flood. And secondly, that there being giants. Every culture, the Bible seems to provide an explanation. Let's move on. Verse five, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man from whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. This combination of Cain's rebellion and the godless society that resulted, coupled with this bizarre demonic intrusion, created this world that God determined was completely and utterly wicked. As we have seen with the rise of atheism in our own time, when a society progresses further and further from God, human depravity and degradation grows all the more perverse. The summation of this world presents a threefold recipe for disaster. Look at it. Three words you might want to underline tells you the tale. Every intent, only evil, continually. It's all you need to know. That is a bleak situation. Now note, this word wickedness doesn't describe the deeds of man, but instead describes the core condition of man that manifests his deeds. It wasn't that man did wicked things, but that man at his very core was described by God as being wicked. Makes sense when every intent was only evil continually. As David Guzik wrote, no aspect of man's nature was not corrupted by sin. Darkness in this world dominated. Now notice God's reaction to all of this stuff. Like everything we just talked about. How does God react? Look at it. First, we read these three interesting words. The Lord saw. You might want to highlight that. The Lord saw. Understand, nothing was taking place in this world outside of the providential eye of God. Like this descent into chaos hadn't occurred because God was unaware or caught off guard. God sees all. He knows all. None of what was taking place was a surprise to God. And yet, because man had placed God on the sidelines, he was forced to watch idly by not as the world was destroyed and destroying itself, but as man, keep in mind, the gem of his creation, 
The very thing he had created in his own image and his own likeness had rejected him, but then descended totally into the depths of lechery, perversion. God's order, what God had created, was descending into uncontrollable chaos. Imagine your God on the sideline, forced to watch, to see. We're also told that as a result of what was happening, the Lord was sorry. Like this doesn't mean, this word sorry, that God regretted that he had made man. Rather, he was sorry what had become of the man he had created. It's not as though that in this moment, God was like, I made a terrible mistake making that moron. Should have never done it. No, the, the, the fact that the Lord was sorry was that he was grieved that what he had created had ended up where it was. He didn't regret that he had made man. He had regret what had become of the man he had made. The Hebrew word nacham, it literally means that God was moved to pity, that he was filled with compassion. Because God loved mankind, he loved man. He loved these men. And because he was witnessing the tragic results of man's rebellion, God's compassion, he was sorry, but what did it yield? God's compassion yielded incredible grief. As a result of these things, we're told the Lord was grieved in his heart. The word grieved, it means that God was cut to the heart. He was pained within himself. Note, grief. Isn't grief much, a much different reaction than anger? God was not angry. He was not vindictive. He was grieved. He had grief. Grief only exists when it possesses an emotional tie, an emotional investment. Genuine grief can only be born out of a sincere love. I can pity you. I can feel bad for you. But if I grieve over you, it communicates that I care about you deeply. I don't take these things lightly. The idea, the, the, the picture painted is very much of the father and the son who goes rogue, the prodigal, who rejects the father and goes out on his own and his life is ruined. The difference is that in the prodigal son, the father stayed at home. He wasn't witnessing everything that was happening with his kid. But God here is, he sees, he's moved, he's grieved. This morning, I just want you to know that if you're in rebellion, if you're resisting God, resisting the things of God, you've made the decision like Cain. Thanks, no thanks, I'll do this on my own. I'll make a world without you. I'll be my own God. If that's you, God sees. He sees. He sees your wickedness. He sees your rebellion. God, as a matter of fact, has a front row seat watching your world digress into chaos. He surveys how your sinful behaviors, how your choices are destroying the life he created. And I want you to know this morning, 
it grieves him. It grieves him. He's not angry, but he is heartbroken. Understand, while God wants nothing more than to intervene, as a divine gentleman, he'll never force himself upon a person who doesn't want his involvement. I want you to know this morning that you are forcing God to watch sin destroy your life from a distance. And he takes no pleasure in this. He grieves over the way the world is robbing you of the life that he even went so far as to send his only begotten son to die to redeem. He's not angry. He's heartbroken. When we talk about hell, we think that it's something that God delights in. And you know why we do that? Because we delight. Don't you delight in getting back at someone who's hurt you? Or seeing someone reject your counsel and it all falls apart? You're like, told you so. That within our fallen nature, there's a, a perverted sense of pleasure in that. I told you so. You reap what you sow, man. And yet with God, to have someone reject him he takes no pleasure at all. He saw every intent, only evil continually. If it were you and I, it'd be like, man, I'm sitting in a flood and I'm gonna get some popcorn. I'm gonna watch this movie because you're getting what you deserve. But no, this is the last thing God wanted to do. And yet, with all of this in mind, we're told that the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. And then it's added a few verses later that God would destroy man from the face of the earth. When the movie Noah <clears throat> recently hit theaters, comedian, and I say comedian loosely, he's kind of a terrible comedian, but Bill Maher, he, he's not funny. He made this observation about Genesis 6. He kind of weighed in you know, being the biblical scholar Bill Maher is. He weighed in on Genesis 6 on his HBO show. This is what he said, quote, the thing that really is disturbing about Noah isn't the silly. It's that it's immoral. It's about a psychotic mass murderer who gets away with it. And his name is God. Genesis says God was so angry with himself for screwing up when he made mankind so flawed that he sent the flood to kill everyone. Not everyone. Men, women, children, babies. What kind of tyrant punishes everyone just to get back at the few he's mad at? I mean, beside Chris Christie. That's actually kind of funny. And then he says, he says, hey God, you know you're kind of a jerk. When you're in a movie with Russell Crowe and you're the one with anger issues. Now, it's true. Undeniable from our text, right? God, God was giving mankind 120 years to repent of his sin. Making, making it clear that if that didn't happen, God was going to put an end to the madness. He would destroy the world. And yet, Bill Maher's understanding of what's actually wrong because it wasn't just a few and why God had to act. 
Well, I have to say, it's just completely ignorant to the text. Do you get this impression from God that he's this vengeful mass murderer? He saw, but he was cut and he grieved. God was not anger and his judgment didn't flow from some animosity. The text tells us that it was from the basis of compassion and love for man that he had to act. And why? Well, according to the first four verses, God had to act to preserve the integrity of his plan for salvation. What was occurring was a demonic, satanic attack to ruin man's chances to be saved. So I would ask, would a God be moral if he sat back and allowed humanity to ruin the only chance of salvation he had? Concerning this phrase, my spirit will not strive. David Guzik makes another important observation that carries with it a very stark warning, I think that should be shared. He writes, God did not allow the human race to stay in this rebellious place forever. This means there is a point of no return and all our rejection of God. God will not woo us forever. There is a point where he will say no more. All the more reason for us to say today is the day we will respond to Jesus instead of waiting for another day. We have, you have, no promise that God will draw you some other day. This is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I hope you know this morning that Jesus loves you and he sees the world ripping you off. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die so that you could have another way, so that you could have life and that more abundantly. But please understand Please understand, you are not guaranteed tomorrow to make that decision. Truth be told, you're not guaranteed the rest of the day. So don't wait. Now, while this statement does present an incredible warning to those who, those who are rebelling against God, there's another aspect of this text that, that should be pointed out. Think about it. Yes, the fact that there was 120 years that remained before God would destroy, communicating the reality that, that there's a limitation. To me, I look at the other side of it and I see something awesome. Like in light of everything that we were just told was going on in this wicked world, the very fact that God was striving. Like he says, God will not strive forever, indicating God was currently presently striving to the point that he was willing to prolong his judgment another 120 years. The fact that God would do that in light of the things we saw is nothing shy of an incredible demonstration of God's love, but mainly his grace. Every day you're given more time is grace. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we're told the Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's continue on. But Noah, we're told, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We're told this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
The earth also was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence, so God looked upon the earth. And indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you should make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits. It's height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above. So the window would be above and set the door of the ark in its side and you shall make it with lower second and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh and which is the breath of life. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds of their kind, of animals of their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Now there is a ton that we just read through, especially about the ark and this coming flood that we could look at. We're going to push that to next week because we're limited in time, because I want to take the time we have left to focus instead on one bigger, more pressing issue. Look back at verse 8. Well, we've seen God's grace weaved to the first five chapters of Genesis. It is here, as it pertains to Noah, that we have the very first mention of this central revolutionary biblical concept. Noah found grace. It's the first mention of this word, grace. This word found also presents a very fascinating reality. The idea behind the word isn't that Noah somehow stumbled upon God's grace. I'm playing Pokemon Go and I stumbled upon something. No, 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 it wasn't an accident. Nor does it communicate an action of Noah. The idea is not that Noah somehow stumbled upon God's grace, but rather that God's grace found Noah. Think about the implications of that. This means that Noah didn't earn grace, nor does the text imply he deserved grace. The word found implies God's unmerited favor simply came upon Noah, independent of Noah. Additionally, the order of our text presents another incredible reality. Look at it. The presentation in verse 9 of Noah as a just man, perfect, a man who walked with God, and ultimately, at the end of the chapter, did according to all God had commanded him. This description of Noah, look at it, it comes after verse 8. It comes after Noah had been given the grace of God. Amazingly, God's grace being extended to Noah precedes all the other details we have about Noah. This means God's grace, that God didn't show Noah grace, 
because of these things. That God, he's a just man, he's perfect, this, that, I'll show him grace. No. Instead, what the text tells us, the order, is that Noah found grace first. And then it was God's grace that manifested these results in and through his life. Think about it. Because of God's grace, Noah, we're told, was a just man. He wasn't a just man, thus he found God's grace. He was given God's grace, which made him a just man. Now pause for a minute, because this word just, it's, it's a terrible translation from English into Hebrew. Though the word just does imply Noah did what was right based upon God's determinations, the word, look at it, is it being used to describe what Noah did? No. It's being used and said to describe who Noah was. Not his behaviors, but that Noah was a just man. You see, while the Hebrew word is translated as just 42 times in the Old Testament, this is what's amazing. An astounding 162 times you find this word that in this minute is translated just, 162 times it's actually translated as righteous, not just. The better translation of what we find here of this verse is that Noah wasn't a just man. He was a righteous man. To this point in Genesis 7 verse 1, if you'll look, the exact same Hebrew word is used when God says to Noah, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, to understand how Noah could have received such a status before God, like how, how was he a, a righteous man? Well, we look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, and for the sake of time, I'll just read it for you. We're told there that by faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became, look at it, heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. As with the case of you and I, Noah received the grace of God. Why? Because of his faith in God, which then attributed to Noah a righteous standing before the God of the universe. Grace, faith, righteousness. It's how it works. Romans chapter five, verses one and two, we read, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus, through whom also we have access by faith into what? This grace in which we stand. We're also told because of God's grace, and his righteous standing before God that manifested from his faith, Noah was perfect in his generation. This word perfect in the Hebrew is translated into English 44 times in the Old Testament. Uh, not 44 times, uh, a few times. 44 times, it's instead translated as without blemish. Often used to describe the sacrifice without blemish, without spot, presented before God. The word perfect in his generation describes Noah. Because of his righteous standing in God's eyes, brought forth from his faith and God's grace, 
what this word tells us. Noah received God's grace. God's grace made him righteous. His righteousness resulted in the fact that he was positionally now perfect in the eyes of God, the evaluation of God. This meant that while Noah would still sin, we'll see that, he gets drunk later on and acts a fool. While Noah would sin, this word tells us that Noah was no longer a sinner. And there's a distinction. His position before God had changed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we're told that as a result of this same work in our lives, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And then in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Because of God's grace, we're also told, look at it, that Noah walked with God. Noah's life was transformed. How? How did he walk with God? Was it because of what he did? Is that how he walked with God? Some type of behavioral modification? How did Noah walk with God? He found God's grace. He became righteous. He was positionally perfect. And all that resulted in the fact that he had access and opportunity to enjoy a relationship with God. It wasn't about what Noah did. It was instead now all about who he knew. It's what changed his life. Just like Enoch before, that Noah enjoyed a personal relationship with God and it was that relationship that changed him and transformed him from the inside out. As he walked with God, as he related with God, as he hung out with God, God rubbed off on him. And finally, we'll close with this. Because of God's grace, Noah was able to obey the commands of God. The way the whole chapter ends, we're told, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Well, we'll dig into kind of the radical nature of Noah's obedience next Sunday. Don't miss the implications of this. It's a big question. How do we obey God? How do we live a life that pleases God? God's grace coupled with Noah's faith deepened in the fact that he possessed now a relationship with God. What did it result in? Naturally. It wasn't something that he had to strive to do. It was something he naturally did. What, what happened? What resulted? Noah obeyed God. It manifested in obedience. That's how we obey God. It's not by knuckling down 12 steps. It's by being found in his grace, being made righteous in his eyes, perfect. That's who we are. And then it's by walking with God that then we're able to obey God. Friend, how is it that you're made righteous before God? Your works? Your efforts? Your merit? Nope. Noah teaches us it's only by God's grace and your faith and his word. How is it that you're able to be positionally perfect in the eyes of God? Law, religion, sacrifices? Nope. Noah teaches us what? That it's only by God's grace and your faith in his word. How is it that you're able to walk with God? Which is what we want to do as believers, right? We want to walk with God. How do we do it? Discipline. 
greater devotion, behavioral modification, self-help. Nope. Noah teaches us it's only by God's grace and your faith in his word. How is it that you're able to obey the commands of God? Something we want to do. Do we obey God through our best attempts? Creative strategies. Maybe greater willpower. Nope. Noah teaches us it's only by God's grace and your faith in his word. Finally, how is it that you're ultimately spared the judgment of God? Being good enough? Moral? How about this? Sincere? Nope. Noah teaches us it's only by God's grace and your faith in his word. While the world was on a one-way track towards destruction, Noah was saved for one reason and one reason alone. Friend, it's the same reason you and I are saved. How? He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that grace took on human flesh, came and lived among us, and died on the cross to make a way for us to find life. God's grace moved to action. As with Noah, Ephesians 2 verse 8 makes this incredible proclamation about you and I. We're told for by, can you guess? Grace. You have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't merit it. It is, we're told, the gift of God. Amen? So Father, Lord, that